Welcome to How to Build a Village. Joining me today is Yelena Subotic, a Georgia State University professor and author of the book Yellow Star, Red Star, looking at Holocaust remembrance after communism. So welcome, Yelena. Thank you very much. It's wonderful to be here. Well, I'm so eager to talk to you about this book. And of course, I've been a huge admirer of your work since I took your class on human rights at Georgia State University in Atlanta. I remember, and you were a wonderful student. Oh, thank you. Yeah, we had had to get that on tape. <laughs> of course. I love the way the book explores how states make strategic use of political memory to resolve um, their contemporary insecurities and just looking at identity. So can you talk a bit about how various European states use identity to skew their interpretation or memory of the Holocaust? So the way that I understand state identity is really, it builds on how we understand our own individual identities. So think about all of us as individuals, we have our own identities, we identify uh, with our uh, background, with our racial background, our ethnic background, our gender background, our political background, our educational background, all of these little elements of your biography of who you are build into a sense of identity so that you have a sense of who you are in the world and how you perceive yourself and how others perceive you. And that can be for good or for ill. And a lot of, of us act out of our identities. We all act out of our political identities. We vote for political parties out of how we think uh, our values and our um, sense of who we are guides our and shapes our behavior. So I take that idea of identity and uh, apply to a group context. And I'm obviously not the first, not the last one to do that. A lot of us who, who work in uh, political science or international relations or sociology would look at group identities and how societies understand themselves in a group setting. What is, what is a collective identity? What is it that the British have in common? What is it that Americans have in common? Now, that doesn't mean that there aren't people who do things and understand things differently, who oppose or have contrasting views. This doesn't mean that it has to be a homogenous view that everybody has, but it means that these are views that are widely shared across society. So in the American context, for example, there's a widely shared view of American exceptionalism, that we are a super democracy and all this democracy and our institutions are the strongest or that we won World War II and all sorts of things. The, the, the British have a very strong sense of their imperial past and uh, how important a country they are and what an important role they played in World War I and World War II and so forth. And so all countries have a sense of identity. What is it that brings people together and what it is that most people share. So what interested me is how does that identity change in the aftermath of major ideological shifts, such as in the case that I'm interested in, the shift from communism to post-communism. Because communism as an ideology provided a sense of identity to countries in East Central Europe. It was a communist identity. It was anti-capitalist, anti-Western, anti-American, um, very much a collective group sense of superiority 
versus Western countries, a superiority of the socialist system, superiority of the Soviet model versus the American model and, and so forth. And after the communist system collapsed, these countries now had to build some new identity. All of a sudden, everything you thought you knew about your country had to be changed. You're no longer a communist country. You're something different. And what, what are you going to be? What are those main values, ideas, uh, historical memories that you want to latch on to build your new identity? Mm -hmm. And I document in the book how the building of this new identity was very difficult in a lot of post-communist countries when it comes to dealing with legacies of World War II and especially legacies of the Holocaust. A lot of countries in the process of transitioning from a communist to a post-communist system were forced to face the legacy of World War II. And they were trying to build a sense of identity on a new uh, series of values than what communism provided. And the problem was that in facing the past that included the past of World War II, they were forced to face the history of their own complicity, of their own collaboration, and of murder that a lot of their citizens carried out in addition to the murder carried out by Germans. And that was a very problematic and difficult legacy that shaped the identity of these countries moving forward from communism. As the author, what, what were the surprises that you encountered writing this? The, some of the surprises were personal, some were academic. I, for example, had to face a new understanding of my own family's history in this period. I, in the process of researching this book, found out that my grandfather was the chief of special police in Belgrade, Serbia, where I'm from, and that in the first couple of months of the Nazi occupation, he was the one in charge of coordinating a special unit for rounding up Jews and registering Jews and issuing yellow armbands and collecting Jewish property and then writing reports to the Gestapo. <laughs> that's the, that was a surprising information. It's not, you know, something you find out every day. Um, so that is something I, I did not really know. And I write about that in the book and just the process of kind of slowly understanding that my grandfather was not, a, not a completely tangential figure to the history of the Holocaust in Serbia, but had an, a pretty central role in the first four months of the Nazi occupation. Later, his role diminishes. And as I write in the book, he moves to a much uh, less important post and then himself gets arrested by the Gestapo because they thought he was collaborating with the communists. So <laughs> it all gets very complicated. Uh, but, but it was a kind of surprising finding of what my own family's role in this is the role of you know, my own role as somebody who uh, who's writing about this. Um, so that that was, I guess, a very personal surprise. Um, but in terms of kind of academic surprise, it was interesting to see the extent to which the way that the Holocaust played out in the Balkans, especially in Serbia and Croatia that I write about, how important that first a very early um, collation into the Holocaust, how important it was for the later phases of the Holocaust in the rest of Eastern Europe. 
Mm-hmm. Um, we usually, when we talk about a Holocaust, we talk about Poland and Hungary and Central European countries. But the history of the Holocaust before even the camps in Poland were set up is the history of the Holocaust in the Balkans that was much more uh, significant for what came after than I initially thought. And I thought that was um, kind of an interesting finding of putting the larger history of the Holocaust in a more uh, linear timeline. And what did your role, your identity, what sort of, how did that shape the narrative of the book? And that's so amazing that, you know, that what you were able to uncover, I thought that was such a powerful intro, your, your personal history of your grandfather, but how did your identity inform the narrative or shape their narrative or, or, or did it, were you, did, were you after, after you processed it, what you discovered about your grandfather, were you dispassionate as you wrote the rest or were, how hard was it to divorce your own identity from your work? I don't think we should divorce our identity from our work. I think I think we owe it to the readers to disclose it and to disclose who we are and how we come to both our topic and how we come to our research, which is what I try to do um, in the introduction of the book and set up the story and explain kind of how I fit into all of this. But I certainly don't think that writing a, I, I, I don't know how you, I've, I've certainly never been able to quite understand the value of dispassionate writing, especially on topics like mass murder and genocide. I mean, I think it would be very problematic to be dispassionate about that. But your question about how, you know, my own identity plays into this, I think is is a very important one. And I have written about this elsewhere, which is, you know, as I said in the very beginning, we all bring different types of identities in our ethnic identity or racial or whatever, religious or anything like that. And I think it's, it was important to me to present the history of the Holocaust in Serbia, where I come from, in a way that is just as critical and just as piercing as I would of any other country. In other words, I didn't want to, you know, make Serbia look better uh, than everybody else. And it was also important to be nuanced about how there are some differences between countries and their differences in the the level of crimes is different, or maybe the level of anti-Semitism was different. And I think I try to portray the differences between countries in a very nuanced way, but also always being aware that I, as as somebody with, you know, the way my name is written, people will know that I'm of Serbian descent and that they will perceive my writing in a certain way, even if I don't want it to be because I have that name. And so I, I thought I wanted to be very open about that with my readers and talk about it. I mentioned not just the history of my grandfather, but I mentioned at, at one point in the, in the book that my father was interned as a child in a Croatian concentration camp when he was 10. And I I mentioned that very briefly, but I thought, again, signaling to the reader that I'm somebody who also carries both a legacy of a perpetrator, but I also carry a legacy of a victim, uh, all in my own family. And to talk about how, for example, being a child interned in a concentration camp as a 10-year-old influenced 
my father's worldview and his politics and his understanding of the world really until today. And to talk about, to use that little example as a way to talk about how these enduring legacies of trauma and political violence can really shape somebody's life, you know, way into their 90s. You know, there are other ways in which I think questions of identity play into it. So I'm writing about a Holocaust, but I'm not Jewish. And so I got many, many questions from many people about the book. Well, they would assume either that I'm Jewish or that only Jews write about the Holocaust. Mm -hmm. And so it was, again, important to me to say, well, no, this is a history of, it's, it's, it's human history. This is not just history important for the Jew, to the Jews. This is a history important to all of us. And, and if it's not, it should. And specifically, it's important, in my view, for people who come from societies that had a very difficult and troubling relationship with the Holocaust and the history of collaboration and complicity uh, to write and understand what happened. And this is not just something that should be of interest to the Jewish community only. One of my favorite parts of your book was the acknowledgement section. And when you thank your family, that your family was involved and thanking your your mom for doing some research because she was physically closer to some of the places that you were exploring. I mean, I just think that's so great that your family was, were like your research assistants. Mm-hmm. And, and contributing. How did you come up with the idea for the book? I was always interested in the politics of historical memory and how the societies and states remember their past. And in my earlier work, I looked at more recent past. So I, my expertise is in the Balkans and especially the former Yugoslavia. And so my earlier work was on uh, memories of the wars of the 1990s in Yugoslavia. And as I was working on that first book and, and the work since then, it became very obvious that a lot of the memories of the 1990s wars were really kind of replicated memories of World War II. And it became clear to me that if I don't understand World War II, I cannot really understand the types of memories and conflict over memory in the more recent past. So I've already kind of even 10 years ago when I published, or maybe even 12 years ago, I forgot, when I wrote my first book, I already knew that I would come back to World War II at, at, some, at some point. And so I, I was kind of nurturing that idea. But to be honest, I was very nervous about it because working on the Holocaust to me was always such a huge responsibility. I was always nervous, you know, what if I get something wrong? What if I'm not a historian? I'm a political scientist. I don't speak German. I cannot access, you know, I I had all these like various obstacles that I thought I would encounter. And it took some courage to try and see what I can write, even on a topic that I was a little bit nervous writing about for the first time. And it really developed from a shorter article that I wrote a couple of years ago about the Auschwitz Memorial Museum that I visited. And I noticed that in addition to the general exhibit that most tourists uh, visit, there are special national exhibits that individual countries have put up. So Russia has one, Czech Republic, and Slovakia, and Austria, and Belgium and France had their own national exhibits. And it was very interesting uh, for me to see how they were very different and they focused on very different aspects of their history. So I, I got very intrigued in how 
Holocaust memory becomes nationalized and becomes part of a national memory. And from that earlier article, I, I developed a plan for a book that would take this one idea about how the Holocaust memory becomes part of national memory and is used for political, contemporary political purposes to, to develop that into a, into a full-length book. I mean, it must have been such a hard book to write as well. I mean, how, how long did it take you and how were you able to process the atrocities you came across? Yeah, that was definitely the hardest part of writing it was the emotional aspect. So it took me, I would say, maybe four years, I think, give or take. It also included a lot of site visits. So I went to 10 countries. I visited as many sites, marked and unmarked museums, but also execution sites or places that have some memorials or monuments. So a lot of the four years was were spent visiting and taking pictures and translating the inscriptions on monuments and things like that. But the emotional part of writing was, I think, the most difficult. Every single testimony or diary or letter or account was kind of worse than the one before. And it's really amazing, you know, even though I thought of myself as someone who knows a lot about a Holocaust and has read a lot of history about a Holocaust, the graphic nature of the brutality and the, the real understanding that in some ways nobody survived the Holocaust, even those who did survive, the trauma and the destruction of their lives never left them. And it was very difficult to read. It was very difficult to read the accounts and some of the sites and some of the photographic evidence that I've seen at some of the museums was extremely difficult to process, especially things that have to do with children, I found very, uh, very, very difficult. And so there were moments where I had to stop writing and kind of take a break and come back to it after a couple of days. There were moments where I just also felt concerned whether my work is exploitative. So, you know, like, do I want to put all this in the book? You know, is it just another way of exploiting other people's tragedy for my own work. Uh, and so I had a lot of ethical dilemmas and ways in which I had to decide what, what level of detail to put in and whether all of that is necessary and how to select which, I mean, you know, there's so many victims. So, you know, how to select who to put in and who to not put in. And all of those kinds of decisions were very, uh, very difficult. I think you handled it elegantly. Well, thank you. Thank you. I'm, I'm glad you enjoyed the book. I thought it was very, very powerful. What are you working on next? So I have a couple of other projects that deal with the Holocaust broadly. So I'm editing a book on the social science of the Holocaust that will put together really the latest research from disciplines that are not history. So from political science, sociology, geography, public health, epidemiology, that can use other methods to bring us some new information about the Holocaust, uh, things like, you know, new epidemiological models that can explain the spread of typhoid in the Warsaw Ghetto and things like that. I'm very excited about a lot of the new research that a lot of young scholars are doing using completely new methodology than what we are accustomed to. I'm also working on a project that is mapping out why is it that anti-Semitism continues to be so 
important for contemporary populist movements all over the world. And even, you know, populist movement in Hungary and in France and the United States and in Germany, they all, they may differ on a bunch of dimensions, but they will eventually get to anti-Semitism. So I'm, I'm, I'm looking at what is it about that particular type of prejudice that brings all of these groups together and why is it that, that is enduring and what can explain the role of anti-Semitism in contemporary populism, especially. And I'm also thinking of a slightly different take on researching monuments than the one that I've just finished in this book, and that is how governments uh, use urban planning and uh, decisions about how to redesign cities and where to put memorials and monuments and which ones to tear down and which new ones to put up as part of a governing strategy. And especially, again, in this era of populism, how do cities begin to look different? And I'm interested in cities like Budapest, for example, under Viktor Orban, that's beginning to look very, very different. And it, the city itself has an imprint of a very, very strong populist narrative. So I'm thinking of writing about how governments use architecture as a political tool. I, I can't wait to read those. <laughs> Thank you very much. I uh, really appreciate your time. Thank you very much. This was wonderful. I really appreciate it. Thanks to everyone who joined us on this episode of How to Build a Village. We look forward to seeing you next time.